Well, we are going to pause, as I mentioned. We're going to pause Daniel. We're going to consider the Christmas season as, as we do as Protestant Christians. We, we take this opportunity every year to stop and consider some of the weight of Christ's arrival. Um, you know, a word you hear a lot in, in Christmas season is Advent. What does Advent mean? Advent just means arrival. It means Jesus showed up. And so we, we celebrate this season every year to remind ourselves of the significance of, what, of what, what took place when Jesus showed up, why Jesus showed up and what he did when he showed up uh, on this earth. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning. Let me give you kind of my whole sermon in one sentence. Advent or, or Christmas, the arrival, it reminds us that God keeps his word. It reminds us that God keeps his word. And he did so with the arrival of Jesus. If there's one thing that I think Christmas should draw us back to thank God continually for every year, it should be this one reality that God is a God who keeps his word. And Jesus is the ultimate sign of that, the ultimate evidence that God keeps his word. You know, the Bible is one story, okay? It's one story about one God rescuing one people through one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. The word the theologians like to use is continuity. There's great continuity in the story, the redemptive story of how God is rescuing his creation. It's all one story from Genesis to Revelation. And, and even though uh, the story unfolds through multiple millennia and multiple covenants and multiple ethnicities and events on multiple continents, it is one great salvation flowing from one great savior, Jesus Christ. This whole book is about Christ. It's either alluding to him, it's either showing us our need for him, it's either unpacking the theology of who he is, it's either pointing to what he's going to do when he returns or telling the story of what he did when he was here. The whole Bible is about whom? It's about Christ. It's about Jesus. Uh, we're going to get into Luke chapter 1, but I just, just really quickly, I want to preach a sermon before I preach a sermon from Hebrews chapter 1. So why don't you flip there really quick. And, uh, and pray that I won't spend too much time here. Uh, you know, you could preach the same sermon from many texts in the Bible, and I could preach this morning's sermon from Hebrews 1, but I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is I want to prime the pump a little bit for some of these truths that we're going to develop uh, in, 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 in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to do it in Hebrews chapter 1. We just studied Hebrews a year or so ago, so this might be reviews for some of you guys. Um, what I want you to see here just quickly in verses one through three is that Jesus is always at the center of what God is doing, okay? Jesus is always at the center of what God is doing. Here's what Hebrews says in chapter one, verse one through three. This could totally be a Christmas passage right here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What does that tell us about our God? He is a speaking God, right? He speaks. He reveals himself. He sends a witness. He always testifies. He, he always speaks. And the way that he spoke in a period of time in the Old Testament was through the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here's some truths that I want you to see in Hebrews that are also going to develop in our passage this morning. Number one, God speaks and his final word is Jesus. Okay, I put that in your notes. Did you guys get a handout, by the way? They're at the door. Did everybody, did anybody get, there's one back there. There's one right there. I give you the notes, and there's some, some, some things in there you can write in. Um, yeah, walk of shame. Yep, walk of shame, Kaylise. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Oh, everybody look at her. She's going. She didn't get it. Anybody else want to get up? No. Uh, <laughs> you got to make an example of somebody once in a while, you know. She keeps everybody. Yeah, and shame is the best way to get people to change. Guilt and shame. For everybody visiting, I'm, I'm joking, okay? Thank you. So you guys that have been here a while, you know. Like, you know, I'm kidding. Sarcasm. Okay. So God speaks, and his final word is Jesus. Let me say it again. God speaks, and his final word is Jesus. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God to a world that was in darkness, Okay, uh, God speaks through Jesus because Jesus is God incarnate in human flesh. You know, Jesus is the ultimate language of God. That God, his desire to communicate his attributes and his nature and his will and his, his program to this world. The, the best way he could do that would be to, was to import himself into a human life. Because humans connect with humans. We understand humans. So God himself comes in human flesh. He's the ultimate revelation of God. The other thing we learn here in Hebrews is that God creates, and when he does, he always does it through Jesus. Think about that. God creates, and when he does, he always does it through Jesus. Hebrews here tells us that when God created, he created the world through Jesus. Why is that significant? Why is the author of Hebrews bringing that up? Because when God creates again, in the recreation, he does it through Jesus. Jesus, the word of God. John 1 tells us Jesus is the word of God. That when God makes stuff, he makes it through Jesus. And when God makes new life and redemptive life um, through the resurrection, he makes it through Jesus. This is important. Thirdly, uh, God saves and he does so by giving us Jesus. Okay, we see this in Hebrews. After making purification for sins, note it, we'll come back to it later, he sat down. So Jesus, the high priest, went into the true holy of holies, the real holy place where God the Father is, and he made one final purification for sins for all believers, all who would trust in God by faith. And then when he was done, he what? He sat down. Just note that. Okay, these are all important realities, and all of these need to be considered when we think about the importance of Jesus' arrival on the world, in the world. We really should ask, Christmas should cause us to ask the question, why did God send his son, second person of the Trinity, God the Son, why did God the Father send God the Son in the form of, of a baby to, to, to grow up and live a 33-year-old human life so that he could die and so that he could rise again? Why all, of, why all of this? Why did all of this happen? Christmas should cause us to ask these questions. And, and more than that, Christmas should bring us to a place, Advent should bring us to a place of worship, and thankfulness that God has, in fact, done that. Now, all this matters to our text because uh, in our text, we're actually going to see, and you can go to Luke chapter 1 now. Uh, in our text, we're going to see um, what historians, or, or not historians, what, what old theologians typically call the Benedictus. Can you guys say Benedictus? Benedictus. Not eggs Benedictus. Different thing. Okay? Different thing. Not eggs Benedictus. Uh, the, the Benedictus 
It, the reason they call that is because in Latin, the first word, the word be, uh, benediction or the word blessing is benedictus. And this is a blessing given by an old priest by the name of Zachariah. Zachariah was the father of who? Some more spiritual people on this side of the room, apparently. So. Who? Sorry? John the Baptist. Good job. Yeah. Way to go. Extra points. Okay. Yeah, Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. Now, I don't have time. I, if, we, if we had like six weeks to do this series, we would just teach through the first couple chapters of Luke, but, but we're not going to do that. So I'm just going to get you caught up on what's been happening. There's been two birth announcements, one of John the Baptist and one of Christ. One came to Zechariah when he was in the temple, and one came to Mary. Okay, and, and the, the angels have been working overtime to make sure that, that all of the remnant, all of the people involved in this are understanding sort of what's, what's going on. Now, if you read Luke chapter one, you'll read the story of this old priest named Zechariah, who, who it was his turn to go uh, into the temple. This was like a once in a lifetime thing where it was his, his turn to go into Jerusalem, into the real temple and to burn incense. And as he's burning incense, an angel appears to Zechariah and says that his wife, Elizabeth, who was an old woman as well, these were, this was an elderly couple, he says, you know, you guys are going to have a child. And, and, and then you're going to name that child John. And that son, John, is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, to the Christ, the Christos, the one who's going to come and save uh, God's people from their sins. And of course, Zechariah kind of goes, how's that going to happen? You know, have you seen my wife? She's really old, right? Basically what he says, which was insulting to Elizabeth, I think if she, she probably got mad at him about that later. Um, it's all conjecture. Regardless, he's silenced for the entirety of the nine months that the, that the, that the baby John is in the womb. Okay, so well, the reason I bring all that up is because John has had some time to consider these things. And that's what I'm going to invite you guys to do this morning. I want you to consider these things like John did. John, in, John. Zachariah, thank you. You guys know what I, don't listen to what I say. Listen to what I mean, okay? <laughs> Zachariah, you know what I'm saying, okay? Zachariah has had nine months in silence to consider these things. And while he's been considering these things, him and Elizabeth have had a visitor. Who's the visitor? It's Mary, young, probably 15, 16-year-old Mary, who's had her own news and has her own child within her, who is the Messiah. She travels to see her aunt and spends a significant amount of time, and I would imagine around the dinner table, they're talking and they're sharing what they've learned and what the Lord has revealed to them, and they're considering Old Testament scriptures, and they're thinking, how is this all going to work, and how is this all going to happen, and what is this, this Messiah going to do, and how is it all going to work? So Zachariah's had a lot of time to think. And, and, and a lot of time to process. And then in Luke chapter 1, if you want to start there, verse 63, um, there's this kind of debate among the townspeople about what they're going to name John. Because, you know, people always want to tell you what to name your kid. You notice that? Um, they're like, you should name him this. And you're like, yeah, not going to happen. Um, yeah. So verse 63, uh, he asked John, or Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Now, it's in this moment, verse 64, that the, the tongue or the ears of Zechariah, not the ears, the tongue of Zechariah is loosed and he's able to speak again. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue loosed, and he spoke what? Blessing God. Okay, Benedictus, blessing. That's Latin, blessing God. So that's why they call this the Benedictus. That's why it's, it's been referred to this. So Zechariah sort of bursts forth in song. Uh, 
in this prophetic utterance, thanking God for everything that he knows is going to happen and is happening because of the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to dig into this morning is we're going to look at this prophetic song, this prophetic um, speech that Zechariah gives in response to the arrival of Jesus Christ. Are you guys with me? Okay, let's dive into it. Let me give you an outline. If you have the handout, um, you, can, you can look at this and you can fill this in. We're going to see uh, Zechariah saw that Jesus' arrival meant two things uh, were true about God. Zechariah saw that the arrival of Jesus meant that two things were true about God. Number one, you want to write it in, God keeps his word. We're going to see that in verse uh, 67 through 75. The second thing we're going to see in Zechariah's prophecy is that God gives his word. Okay, real simple. And that's 78, uh, 76 through 79. God keeps his word. God gives his word. Let's start with God keeps his word. Let's dive into this prophecy. Verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now, before we, we dive into that a little bit more and unpack that, I want to set the backdrop a little bit for the, the, what was going on at the time uh, of Zechariah. I've been reading, uh, as, as I've mentioned before, I've been reading uh, Tolkien's the, the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm onto the Two Towers now. And in the Fellowship of the Ring, there's sort of this, this, this narrative that's developing uh, early on, and it's centered around the ring and the significance of the ring and how important it, it, of a piece it is to the whole story. But the reader isn't sure of that at first. And uh, Gandalf is the first one to sort of put the pieces together. He's the first one to kind of, he's old enough and wise enough. And listen, he's focused enough. Everyone else is just thinking about life. He's, he's putting the pieces together and, and he's been around long enough that he goes, there's something significant about this ring. Um, and and I, I forget exactly, I didn't have time to fish out the quote, but I forget exactly how Tolkien puts it. But, but there were only a few in Middle Earth that were wise enough and who, who remembered enough to actually put this, this puzzle together. Now, I bring that up because I think that's kind of exactly what's happening here in the day of Zechariah. See, uh, the, the, the state of Israel was what was called a vassal state. It was ultimately under the, the, um, the sovereignty of the Roman Empire. So they don't have their own national sovereignty. The king of, uh, of Israel was essentially a vassal king, and he was essentially a stooge. He was a puppet uh, by the name of Herod, okay? Um, and uh, Herod the Great. Uh, if you go to Israel, almost everything you see built uh, in a certain area is built by Herod the Great. Uh, the, the voices of the prophets in Israel have been silenced at this point for 400 years. Okay? So God hasn't been speaking. And in the midst of the lack of God speaking, uh, a lot of error has come out in the theology and in the practice and in the cultural life of the Jews. They're, they're very much sitting in darkness in this particular moment. 
Their worship was commercialized. You see that in Jesus' visceral response to the way the temple um, was being run. Okay, The Sadducees were the ones that ran the temple. And it was a money-making operation. It was, like, it was like mafia business. So the temple was, and, and this is the temple that Zechariah is still sort of participating in, but it was, it was very much commercialized. Uh, and the leadership of the day really in a vacuum became the Pharisees. And they kind of self-deputized themselves. They decided we're going to be the ones that are going to step in and kind of lead. And they were very radical in all the wrong kind of ways. So this is kind of the darkness. This is kind of the, the dullness of the place that Israel is sitting. And this is the moment that God decides to send his son, the Messiah, into the world. And I bring that up because I want you to see that the posture of Israel was, was such that they, they kind of missed it. But not everybody. There were a few. There were a few that were old enough and wise enough and tuned in enough to recognize the king when he arrived. And Luke kind of traces those out, right? We see it in Zechariah. We see it in Elizabeth. We see it in Mary. We see it in Simeon and Anna. There is the remnant. There, are, there is true Israel existing within the apostasy of ethnic Israel, and they are ready for the Messiah to come. And they're looking, and they recognize him. And Zechariah is one of those remnant. He's old, but he's focused. And he's got the experience, and he's got the understanding of the Scripture to know and to be able to piece it all together. And so he spends this nine months of silence not just you know watching Netflix, but sitting there considering how this baby... In the womb of Mary and how his son, John, who's going to be the forerunner, how this is all going to fulfill the promises of the entire Bible. He pieces it all together. And the reason I tell you all that is because when you read verses 67 through 75, it kind of just sounds like an Old Testament prophecy. And that's exactly what it is. Because what, what Zechariah does here is he goes, everything the Old Testament has been promising is yes now in Jesus. Let's trace back through it. I want you to see how many different things he mentions. He, he mentions Abraham in verse 73. He says, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. In other words, Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. He mentions uh, David. You see that in verse 69? He says, and has raised up a horn of salvation. That just means a power of salvation. Uh, for us in the house of his servant David. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise that God is going to raise up a king from the line of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and, and Jesus is the answer to that promise. And then he brings up uh, these words, visitation and redemption, uh, in verse uh, 67, and Father, uh, pardon me, Mm, 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's language straight out of the book of Exodus. Jesus has fulfilled the promises that we see all along the entire redemptive line. Notice in verse 70, he says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's the promises that were given time and time again. Every time Israel would get brought into captivity, like in Daniel, God would promise, I'm going to get you out of here, and I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to establish you. Zechariah is putting all this together, and he's going, this is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. This is the yes to every promise that God has ever made. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father 
Abraham. So what's the point? The point is that Zechariah has figured something out. And that is that the Bible is one story about one God rescuing one people by one person. And that person has arrived. Jesus Christ. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Abraham. He's the greater David. He's not just a new thing. Listen, he's not just a new thing. He's the, 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 the completion, the culmination of the whole thing. All of, the, all of the redemptive thread from Genesis on is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we read our Bibles through the lens of Christ. That's why we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. Because the whole Old Testament is, listen, fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Okay? He didn't just carry on a thing. He completed a thing and is completing a thing. That's why the gospel, which is the news that Jesus has arrived and died and rose, is the best news. Because it's the culmination of all redemptive history. So just some advice. Don't overly chop up the Bible. Okay? Recognize that, yes, God does different things in different seasons. And God works through different people in different places. But God is doing one thing. He's doing one thing. And that thing is to rescue the world. And his promises are, yes, only in Christ. You want to be a recipient of the promises of God? You have to be in Christ. You have to be united to the life of Christ by faith. You have to be a believer. The promises of God are yes in Jesus if you are united to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1-2, Paul says all the promises of God find their yes in him. That means Jesus is the answer to the promises of God. If Jesus doesn't show up, then all the promises of God are marked return to sender. They can't be delivered, undeliverable. Because Jesus has arrived, the promises of God are not returned undeliverable. They have been delivered on. And that's why I said Christmas should remind us that what? God keeps his word. And Jesus' arrival proves that. Remember the road to Emmaus, Luke 24? Jesus is re- resurrected but hasn't yet you know, appeared to, to everybody yet. And he, he kind of sneak attacks these two obscure disciples as they're walking along the road. And he just kind of like merges into traffic with them and starts having a conversation. And they don't know who he is. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only one in, in Judea that doesn't know what's going on? And they tell him, and Jesus kind of plays coy, right? And then and he finally, he sits down with them and he says this, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is Jesus concerned about explaining here? All that the prophets have spoken. He says in 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of the scripture is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The reason we have what's called a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is the science of interpretation or the rules of interpretation. At Philippi, we have a Christ-centered rules for interpretation. We believe that we should read the Bible through the person of Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? Because that's how Jesus taught us to do it. Jesus' first Bible study in his resurrected body was about how the whole Old Testament pointed to him and how he fulfilled the whole thing. So we read it through Jesus. He's the key. He's the key to unlocking the whole thing. Now, how does this have application to us? It's important that we understand that God keeps his word because, listen, we are still waiting. We're still waiting, not for God to keep his word, but we're, we're waiting for the second arrival of Jesus. You know there's two advents of Christ? 
Okay, I want you to think, I want you to picture a mountain range. Okay, you see a mountain range, looks like one mountain, right? And then as you get closer, what do you start to realize? You start to realize actually it's two mountains and there's a valley in the middle. The first mountain is the first arrival of Jesus. Okay, that's already happened. We're waiting for the second arrival. What's the second arrival? Well, he came as a lion, or he came as a lamb the first time. He's coming again as a lion. Okay? He's coming again. And we, like Zechariah, like the remnant, like the exiles, we are waiting for the return of Christ. So we have a lot in common here. And what we should learn from Zechariah is that we should not stop considering the reality of how God will keep his word. We should, we should keep our eye and keep our focus on God's promise. We too are waiting. God is faithful. He'll show up. So, again, if you're following the outline, God keeps his word. Second thing we see is God gives his word. Who is his word? Okay, Jesus. Just want to make sure that, that, that that's clear. God keeps his word and God gives his word. And he gives his word in the person of Jesus. Now look, look at verse 76. Zechariah says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So he, he turns attention here for a moment to the, the office, the, the um, intention of John's life, which will be to prepare the way of the Lord. We're not going to camp on that. Then he continues on with a, a very poetic uh, verse here on the reality of what, um, of what God giving his son to this world actually implies. And so if you want to, if you want to follow along the outline, God gave his word to accomplish two things, write them in salvation and illumination. We're going to see these in the text and this will lead us to the end. Okay. God gave his word to accomplish two things. Number one, salvation. Number two, illumination. Let's start with salvation. He says, you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Prepare his ways for what? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Do you think about God that way, by the way? When you think about God, do you think about his tender mercy? Or do you think about him being some kind of a cosmic killjoy or maybe just a harsh father? Some of you guys had harsh fathers. The descriptor here in Zechariah's choice language is that God is a a very uh, tender and merciful God. And the reason we know that is because he's given us salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is forgiveness of sins. Now, let me pause for a moment. At the time that, that, the, uh, uh, that Jesus arrived on the scene, the time that this um, was, was written by Zechariah, there was quite a few different suggestions as to how God might save Israel put it this way, every different sect of Jews had a prescription for Israel's salvation. Each of them uh, sort of said, this is how we think Israel is going to fulfill the Messianic promises. This is how we think we're going to be saved. Uh, you got the Zealots. You guys familiar with the Zealots? The Zealots thought that the way to salvation was political overthrow. Let's get the Romans out. Let's, let's, let's rebel. Then you got the Pharisees. Now, these guys all kind of, they all kind of mingled in the same, uh, you know, geographical areas, but they didn't really get along. Then you got the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, uh, their emphasis was legal fidelity. They're like, we're going to write books on the books on the books, how to follow the rules. And maybe if we follow the rules good enough, then the Messiah will come. So they kind of walked around just like smacking people upside of the head with their books, uh, uh, with their suggestions uh, that became commandments, that became God's word, Right? 
Uh, so that was the Pharisees. Then you have uh, another group we don't talk about as much called the Essenes. Have you guys heard of the Essenes? If you go to Israel, you'll, go to the, um, uh, you'll see the Qumran community where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there was a community of Jews there that lived during the time of Christ called the Essenes. And they had a very different suggestion. They said, no, let's, let's focus on ritual purity and cultural obscurity. They, they, they lived away from culture. And they, they removed themselves from kind of the world. And then every 10 feet in their community, they had a ritual bath. So they could just sort of cleanse themselves all of the time. And then you have the Sadducees. Who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were, were the people that were running the temple operation. Okay? They were like deists. They believed that there was a God. But they didn't really believe God gave a rip about what they were doing. So therefore, they ripped off the people with the temple. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were two different groups. In the Essenes and the Zealots, and they, they didn't all really get along. They all found some common ground. Most of them, some of them found some common ground on wanting to kill Jesus eventually. Um, but my point is that each of them had a different suggestion as to how salvation was going to come. Now, what is Zechariah? What does he do? What's his profession? He's a priest. He's not the, he's not the Sadducees who's you know, making money hand over fist. He was probably a very humble um, probably fairly poor, faithful old priest who year after year had done the service that he was called to um, by God in the, in, the, in the family that he was um, in. He was a priest. And because he was a priest, Zechariah here rightly emphasizes something. He rightly emphasizes that the greatest need of humanity is to be forgiven by God. It is atonement. It is salvation in that we need to be forgiven by God. We are saved by God, from God, to God. Zacharias spent his life elbows deep in the costly, bloody mess of people's sins and their pursuit to be made right. Zechariah would have constantly been aware of just how exhausting it was to try to help people deal with their sin and their brokenness. He was a priest. That was what he did. So what does Zechariah emphasize when he thinks about the salvation that has come because of Jesus' arrival? He doesn't emphasize political stuff. He doesn't emphasize uh, legal stuff. He emphasizes the grace of God to provide redemption by salvation, that our debt has been paid. Christmas reminds us that humanity's greatest need is not just peace. Listen to me. It's not just peace. You'll drive all around town and you'll see signs that say peace, Christmas, peace. Okay, everybody's all about peace, right? Humanity's greatest need is not just peace. It's peace with God. And only in Christ can we have peace with God. Because only in Christ have we been given forgiveness. And not forgiveness in that God just decided to not worry about our sin anymore, but forgiveness in that our sins have been paid in full. And Zechariah, who spent his entire life covered in blood because of the sacrifices that had to be made every day over and over again because people keep sinning and sinning and sinning and there's so much brokenness, he rejoices in the fact that the lamb has come and died the death and did what when he was done? Sat down, as Hebrews chapter one told us. Why is it significant? That he sat down, the high priest, because there's no more work to do. There's no more atonement needed. There's no more blood that needs to be shed. No more lambs that need to be brought in. Zechariah is putting two and two together, and as a priest, he goes, 
The good news of the arrival of Jesus is that salvation has been bought and paid for, and we now have peace with God, which is what we truly need. Number one is what we truly need. We need peace with God. If you look at verse 75 in our text, it says that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness. You know what righteousness means? It means rightness. It means we need to be made right. We need to be made right with God. God's plan of salvation was to send a lamb into the world. Jesus was the lamb. Zechariah's son, John, pointed this out. Behold, the lamb of God who comes to what? Take away the sin of the world. These guys all understood that the greatest need of humanity was for sin to be paid for, for sin to be taken away. And Jesus literally came into this world to die and then to be resurrected. This is significant to us because the world says that our greatest need is self-love and self-acceptance, but they're wrong. Our greatest need is to be forgiven by God. And every human is looking for that. They just don't realize it. And they're knocking on every door that the world can possibly provide, hoping to find relief from their lack of rightness. And no amount of sacrifices and no amount of posturing and no amount of achieving is ever enough. Zachariah knows that, oh, I like this song, sorry. It's my favorite. <laughs> You're good. I just, I can't focus. That's my problem. Uh, God, God say, yeah, it's actually a good point that I need to, I need to move on. Can speed up. Okay. Uh, we spend our life trying to atone is, is what I'm saying. We, we try to atone to people by our image. We try to atone to self by our achievement. We try to atone to our little G gods through religion, but they all lead to nowhere. Only God's gift of salvation is adequate and will br bring in the, the peace that, that we need. So, number one, salvation. Number two, if you're following along, um, God gives his word for salvation. Number two, illumination. And this is important. Illumination. Let's look again. To give knowledge of salvation in our text, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Listen, whereby the sunrise. Now, can I pause? This is poetry, guys. Do you understand that? When you read the prophets, you need to recognize it's written, it's written to be seen and felt. Okay, they didn't have, you know, 4K cinematic photography or video back then. This was how they communicated feelings. This is supposed to, to pull you into a feeling, and I want you to get that when you read this. He says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The imagery is that You've been sitting behind a tall mountain in the dark for a long time. And you're cold and you're frozen and you're discouraged and you can't even walk because it's so dark. And then in an instant, the beams of the sun begin to pop over the top of the ridge of death and they begin to thaw your soul. So Zachariah is trying to convey here in this prophetic, poetic imagery that the light of Jesus' arrival is like beams of sun on a very frozen body. You know, I, this is such a stupid story. When I was in high school, we decided to go backpacking in the Redwoods. And, uh, man, high school was 20 years ago now. That hit me as I was going through Dutch Bros the other day. 
the guy, the kid was like, listen to this song. I was like, hey, I like that band. He's like, yeah. I was like, did you see them when they played in Medford? He was like, no. He was like, when was that? I was like, 20 years ago. He's like, I wasn't alive. Like, oh, so this is what it feels like. Oh, my goodness. Okay. He's like, yeah, I don't know. This is my dad's music. My dad likes this music. I'm like, your dad? Like, how old's your dad? He's like, 37. I'm like, oh, oh, gosh. Okay. So me and, me and some friends went backpacking in, in the, the Redwoods, and we had, you know, we, we, I don't think you're supposed to backpack in the Redwoods. We were, like, breaking the law and stuff. So uh, we, we went off trail to, to make sure we didn't get caught, and we went found this secret place, and we made up camp, and it was really nice and cozy, and then we got bored, like you do. Uh, like, 9 o'clock, we got bored. We're like, let's go into Crescent City, because there's stuff to do at Crescent City at 9 o'clock. So we get into Crescent there's, there's There's five of us, and we're in this tiny little Kia Rio, tiny little car. We cram in this car. We go into Crescent City. We realize everything's closed, and it's pouring down rain. And then we go, I don't think we're going to find our way back to our tents. What are we going to do? None of us had money for a motel. So we literally spent the whole night um, walking around in the rain, crammed in the car, trying to sleep. 3 a.m., we finally went to Denny's. We all got food poisoning. It was the worst night ever. And I'm telling you guys, when the sun came up, and hit the car. I rejoiced. The night is over. Longest night of my life, okay? Now, that's kind of the, the feeling that's supposed to be felt here. Israel has been sitting in darkness. The prophetic voice has been silenced. Rome has been oppressive. Their king is a, is a, is a stooge king. The, the, the Pharisees are overbearing, and the temple's been pimped out, and it's just a, a dark, cold moment, but the light of Christ has come and has shone into our lives. It's like in Narnia, C.S. Lewis is trying to convey that the, the snow is beginning to melt in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because Aslan is on the move and the witch's power is being peeled back and the green and the spring is starting to pop out. Now, I want you to note some things about the imagery here that I think are worth our attention. First of all, I, I think we're meant to see here that uh, the imagery here is not that the light is being created, it is that the light is emerging. Do you see that? The light is coming out from behind the mountain. Now, look carefully. Be, be Bible students for a second. Look down. What is, the, what, is the, the, what is the thing blocking the light? It's the shadow of death. So we're, we're meant to see this mountain that is the shadow of death that has been keeping the light that exists away from us. You know, it's, it's the sun never goes off. <laughs> Do you guys know that? <laughs> we, we, we rotate, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, always, it's always blue sky above the clouds, okay? The reality is, is that the kingdom of God has always been large and in charge. When Jesus prayed, may it be on earth as it is in heaven, he's saying, may the light that is full blast in heaven begin to break in to this dark and, and shadowed world. See, we, we've been living under the cloud cover of death in a fallen Genesis 3 world. Jesus' arrival begins to crack open the sky and let the reality of God's light that never diminished begin to break in. And that's our job as Christians. We are literally outposts of light that allow the kingdom of God to break in through our lives so that people might see it. God has always ruled. This world has just believed otherwise. The other thing I want you to see in this imagery is that uh, the poetic verse uses darkness as a metaphor for death, 
casting a shadow over the world. Now, it's significant because why did Jesus come into this world? He came in to die so that he could defeat death. So the mountain has been cracked open. The gospel is that Jesus came into the world to die so that he could put death to death, and the mountain is cracked open, and the light comes streaming in in the form of the gospel. That's really good news. Zachariah is putting all this together. He's had nine months to sit there with his Bible thinking about how Jesus is the answer and the yes to every promise God has ever made. And he's gushing with worship over the goodness of Christ and his arrival. I want you to see that uh, those in darkness are sitting. Do you see that? Look at it again. To give light to those who sit in darkness. Why are they sitting? Have you ever tried to walk in complete darkness? It's not easy. Have you ever been in a cave where there's zero light and you turn the lights off? You ever feel like moving? No. The implication is that God's people have been sitting in the dark. And because they've been sitting in the dark, they're not moving. But what does he say? He says, to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What does that mean? It means because Jesus arrived, we now can start moving. The Christian life is not a sit and wait. It's a walk and work and wait. Do you want to add a third? The Christian life is a life of walking. We don't just sit and strap in and wait for Jesus to return. We walk out our faith. We walk in the light. Jesus has come and given us light so we can walk between the two mountains, so we can walk in this dark age. Because, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus hasn't turned the lights completely on yet. He will, Revelation 21, spoiler alert. But for now, he's given us his presence and his word to carry with us. And what are we supposed to do with his light? We're supposed to shine it on our path so that we can see how to walk. Okay, and how do we do that? We do that by reading his word and letting his word read us. Piece of advice you ever go camping and you got the headlight on? Just be aware that when you're staring at somebody and you got a headlight on, you're blasting them in the eye, right? What is a headlight designed for, a headlamp? It's designed to look at your feet. Okay, and sometimes we think the purpose of the light is to blast people in the face. But in reality, you should be picking this thing up every day first and foremost to keep your feet illuminated and see, am I walking right with the Lord? We're going to take communion in a little bit, and the purpose of that is to go, God, is there anything in me that the gospel needs to come in and flesh out? Is there any area in me that I need to believe your grace, that your grace can be applied? Is there any area in me where I'm not believing that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, where I'm, I'm continuing to try to atone for my own, my own salvation? We take that communion to remind ourselves of the reality of the gospel. So we've been given the light of Jesus to illuminate our path, to see the way. You know the earliest Christians were called the way. The, early, the, the earliest uh, writings that we have of, of what Christians first started to call themselves wasn't Christians. Christians was actually a pejorative term given to them by the world, which I love, little Christ, right? But the Christians gave themselves a name. It was the way. Where did they get that? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus came into the world because he is the way. And we walk it out with him in his presence and in his word. Now, I want you to note one more thing here in this is that the light leads to a peaceful path. Do you see that? To guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, peace doesn't mean a path without perspiration. Peace means a path without condemnation. 
See, sometimes we think, well, peace means I don't have to do anything hard. That's not true. You guys might testify to this. Sometimes the hardest things you ever go through in your life are where you find the greatest peace. And the question is, is it because that's where you're supposed to be? We can, we can have more peace in hard times than we can in easy times if that's what God has asked us to do. The path of peace is not a path of laziness. It's not sitting. It's walking. And it's walking in peace. That's why, listen, this is important. Don't lose me. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You would expect the metaphor is going to be like, I'll give you a seat to sit on. But that's not what he says. I'll give you rest. I'll give you a yoke. That's easy. And a burden. That's like, what's, what's the implication of a yoke? You're going to pull some stuff. Right? Jesus is he's saying, you're not going to sit, you're going to pull, but you're going to pull comfortably because you're going to pull what I've designed you to pull. And you're going to pull with the thing that I made specifically for you to pull with. The Christian life is not about ease. It's about obedience. And we find peace in obedience. So the path, it's not sitting, it's not waiting, it's walking, but it's walking in his plan and in his righteousness with his light on our feet. Okay? So, considering all of this, you can see why Zachariah is singing. I don't think he's really singing, but you can see why he just sort of bursts forth in this, in this benediction, this blessing of God. He's so pumped about Jesus arriving. Let me ask you, are you guys pumped about Jesus arriving? I mean, we, we got to keep our eye on that. There, this, this idea that God himself did not abandon his creation to death and destruction, but rather chose to come into that story and redeem it from the inside out by putting death to death and bursting out of the grave, becoming a new Adam to create a new world is such good news that Christmas should lead us to worship and delight in God every year. It's so good. It's such good news. Advent reminds us that God keeps his word. And Advent reminds us that God gives his word. He gave his word in the person of Jesus Christ. Greatest gift he could ever give. It was an expensive gift. And the gift is only received by faith. Zechariah did not come to this place of clarity by accident, though. Okay, I want you to see that in closing. Never believe a pastor when he says in closing, by the way. In closing. Let me wrap it up. I could drag these three lines out. No, um, Zechariah did not come to this place by accident. We would be wrong to assume that Zechariah had this clarity uh, just completely by accident. I want, you, I want you to see just in closing three things that Zechariah's life, three things in Zechariah's life that we tend to miss in our day-to-day. In your notes, I think I put life, lesson, life lessons from an old priest. So just three takeaways, three applications uh, here that I think we should learn from Zechariah. You want to write them all down. Silence, service, and saturation. Yes, they all start with us. Bonus points. Silence, service, saturation. Number one, silence. I think Zachariah had this kind of clarity because he shut his mouth for nine months and he listened. He listened to Mary and Elizabeth having conversations around the table. He opened the word he considered. You know, the, the ability to sit in silence and solitude is a lost discipline in our culture, isn't it? It's something that, that we, how often do we have space? I'm just, I'm just reading a book right now called, called White Space, and, and she makes this, this really great illustration of a fire, the way you make a fire. That, that, you know, if you cram a bunch of wood into a pile and try to light it, it doesn't light. 
The key to lighting a fire is what? Space. It's creating airflow. The same thing is true, I think, of our spiritual health. Zechariah had nine months to sit and consider and ponder these things. What, what would it look like for you to make time in your day to sit and ponder the reality of Christ and the gospel? What would it look like to make time to, to not, not, just, not just take in content, but just to listen, to be with the Lord, to practice the, 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 the presence of God? So number one, silence. Number two, service. You know, Zechariah wasn't just sitting around. He was faithfully serving and blessing God's people daily. He was serving. He was a servant. And, and it's actually, and I don't want to push this too far, but it was actually in the house of the Lord, serving God's people, that God actually showed up and revealed something to him. Someone once said, when you don't know what to do, do what you know. Zechariah was just being faithful. He wasn't expecting this. He, he was in the last days of his life. He's just being faithful, doing what he knows what he's supposed to do. And he was doing exactly what had God, God had asked him to do. Number three, saturation. He was soaked in God's word. Okay, if you, we didn't go as deep as we could have into this prophecy, but if you go back this week and you just start to double click and consider just how much Bible Zechariah is pulling on in this prophecy, how much Old Testament he's pulling on, this man was soaked in the word of God. He was completely like a sponge, just ready. He was soaked in the word of God, and we should be too. As we wait for the second advent of our Christ, as we wait for the second arrival, we need to know God's word. We need to turn on the light. Amen? Okay, let me pray. Father, as we uh, consider why you sent your son into this world, God, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for saving and God, as we take this moment now to turn to, to the cup and to the bread, Lord, would you continue to lead our hearts in worship, Father? We thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for this prophecy. And Lord, may a spirit of worship continue in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.